Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Well, it is crop tour season across much of the Corn Belt, and that's going to be a big focus here on this episode of AOA, Agriculture of America. Thank you for joining us here today. As always, I'm your host, Jesse Allen, and exciting stuff here on today's show. Coming up, we're going to talk about the DTN Digital Yield Tour powered by Grow Intelligence. Katie Dellinger, farm business editor at DTN, will be joining us in segment three. Before that, in segment two, we're going to have a conversation, a wide-ranging one. Looking forward to this with Dr. James Lamont from the University of Minnesota Crookston. I'm going to talk about a wide range of issues and different research he is working on. That's coming up here in segment two today. And then at the end of the show, we're going to take a look at some of the latest news headlines. Farm Bill, of course, is something we are continuing to follow here on AOA. We'll have some updates and some commentary on that as the process is ongoing. So a lot to get to here on today's AOA. I mentioned, though, crop tour season. We're kicking things off. The professional ag marketing crop tour has been going on here this past week. Mike Miner heads up the tour for professional ag marketing, and he is joining us here today on AOA. Mike, it's great to have you on. How are you, buddy? Very good. Very good. It's been a long week. I can only imagine a lot of hotels, a lot of uh, a lot of fast food, but you know, uh, you guys uh, do an awesome job with this tour, really getting a good boots on the ground look at things. And let's just talk about the the tour route. I know you're finishing up things on Friday, but man, uh, 2,200 miles. Am I reading that right? You put in a lot of miles over the course of five days, Mike. Yeah, it gets to be a pretty long trip here, but I mean, you said boots on the ground and so far here, you know, we started going south on that trip and uh, we've had boots and mud the entire trip. It's mm-hmm. rained pretty much right before every stop and it's been pretty much wet fields the whole time, which I think is maybe one of the main take homes right from this crop tour so far is uh, just the current weather conditions that we're getting right now. And it's uh, my eighth year doing this crop tour. And, uh, you know, it, it's uh, been a pretty consistent route. I'll try to change it once in a while just to hit very specific areas to see. But uh, for the most part, it's always interesting to see farms and APHs change over the years and uh, pull samples from. I try to do the similar fields anyways mm-hmm. in, in each area for uh, individual farmers and tends to find some interesting results here and there. Yeah, well, and you mentioned, you know, walking in mud, and obviously we've seen plenty of rainfall here over the last uh, couple of days. I just think about, you know, you you look at a rainfall map the last 72 hours, uh, some areas, some pretty, you know, dry areas of the Corn Belt that have needed rain have been picking up rain here at, at a, you know, maybe a little too late on corn, but definitely right in time for soybeans. Yeah. And I mean, even corn though, I mean, you're getting a good fill time frame here and soybeans, you couldn't think of a better, uh, better type of weather to fill those out. So it's exactly that rainfall right there that you're showing. It's pretty much everywhere that uh, needed a decent chunk of rain and uh, mm-hmm. it's making a big impact to finish off this crop, I think. Definitely. Well, and if you compare that with a drought monitor, you know, again, some of those uh, areas of seeing, 
you know, deep reds, eastern Nebraska, pockets of southern Minnesota, northeast Iowa, southern Wisconsin, another key area, a lot of Missouri, Kansas, et cetera. So uh, walk us through just some of the uh, the results that you've seen from the tour, Mike. What what are some of the biggest takeaways uh, that you have? So when we when we started the crop tour and we zigzagged kind of between Iowa and Nebraska there, um, Nebraska had been so dry early on and, uh, we've caught enough rain now to where we're at a point where, uh, Nebraska really wasn't looking that bad compared to what my expectations were going into it. I mean, I think they've improved a lot over the last month. You know, so that was a little bit surprising. I thought right off the bat, Missouri was okay until you got about halfway through and, and kind of started getting closer to Illinois, that Northeast Missouri, that was probably the roughest area on the crop tour uh, for conditions. Things just got too dry through that time frame around, uh, you know, June, July, and they've caught some rains now that, that can maybe stop it from getting worse, but it was just too late. So that was the roughest part of the crop tour. And Illinois was really the big X factor. And I think Illinois was maybe the hardest um, crop tour state, I've ever had to judge this year. Mm. And it wasn't because it was like, is it 150 or is it 200? It was more like they had dryness a little bit early on there. And now they've had such nice conditions recently. It was like tip back started, but then it immediately got cut off. And it's so hard to judge how bad is bad. And then the inconsistency of it, what field caught enough rain to kind of get it by in the time being And then, um, you know, how are we finishing out? So Illinois, especially like Northern Illinois was really hard for me to get a good grasp of, but my joke is always, uh, you know, it rains on me every time I go through McLean County in the middle of (laughs) Illinois, I swear it does. So that, that says something alone for the largest corn production County in the nation. But then through Indianapolis, I thought Indiana was close to a record. If not a record, I thought that was really good. Ohio planning conditions held it back a little bit. Uh, from maybe what it could have been, but not a disaster that they've seen some years. Eastern Iowa, I didn't have the greatest expectations for that area. Our branch offices and mechanics fill there. And what I've seen so far, I I have the rest of Eastern Iowa to get through today, but I see a 176 to 177. And honestly, I think that yield has been growing a little bit over the last couple of weeks. That's my numbers right there that I'm, I've come up with so far, I guess. What do you think, Jesse? Well, I was just going to say, I know you have your national yield at 177 for corn, and I know that's right in line with the latest number from USDA. And, you know, we've heard all over the board here. You have the Iowa number up there close to 200, Illinois over 200. Uh, I guess overall, I mean, I feel like some of these numbers are, are fairly in line. What's your takeaway, Mike? The big one I thought, and there's a lot of uh, variety in the number, was like Missouri. That had a ton of different, that was a hard state to judge, so I think that could move a lot. But your Illinois, Iowa, those are going to be the ones that really move the needle. Even in today's report, when you come out with the USDA uh, new number from NAS, that 175.5 expectation that they've got, I mean, that could totally happen. That's not out of line at all from what I could expect. But I will say that number, if they come out at 175 and a half, I think that's a growing number. Like whatever we were a month ago, it's higher. And uh, I think that might be a trend to watch for or follow going forward as well, Jesse. 
Well, we'll be definitely uh, keeping our eyes on how things shake out here as we go through the August USDA report and all the uh, upcoming crop tours as well. And I know, again, uh, Mike, uh, you're wrapping up the tour here today. Thank you for joining us, though, and giving us your uh, results from the professional ag marketing crop tour here this past week. And I know uh, coming up here in the uh, week ahead, we're going to be joined by you at Dakota Fest in Mitchell, South Dakota. Uh, I know you'll be on our marketing panel on Wednesday in the Reeves Education Building and looking forward to um, broadcasting live there for three days here this uh, upcoming week and then having our marketing panel on Wednesday as well. You can find details at dakotafest.com. Mike, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you at Dakota Fest. Can't wait to see you. Great stuff there. Mike Miner with Professional Ag Marketing joining us here today on AOA to give us a recap of their crop tour that he led here this last week, 2,200 miles over the course of the week. That is a lot of drive time and walking a lot of fields. All right, coming up next, we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation with Dr. James Lamont from the University of Minnesota Crookston. That's next as we continue with more AOA right after this. On the latest episode of The Monthly Grind, we talked about the relationship between corn and poultry with Troy Schneider and Michael Granche from NCGA. Troy explains it a little bit more. Poultry is one of our biggest consumers, if not the biggest consumer in the livestock industry, consuming mm-hmm. 1.2 billion bushels of corn. When you take poultry exports and figure that in, the export of poultry brings 28 cents per bushel to the value of corn, and that's $4.1 billion in revenue to the corn industry. And Michael shares some of the continuing goals and outreach efforts that NCGA wants to do with its animal ag partners. Continuing all of the partnership and, and all of the conversations and discussions that we have with our animal ag partners is immediately where my mind goes to of, you know, what I'm thinking about for what continues to excite me and then and what's around the bend. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the latest episode of the Monthly Grind on AOA with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now, excited to have a wide-ranging conversation with our next guest. He is a fellow at the Veden Center for Rural Economic Development with the University of Minnesota Crookston, and we're pleased to have him here on AOA with us today. Dr. James Lamont is with us, and uh, Dr. Lamont, thanks for joining us here on the show. I hope you're doing well. Hey, I'm doing great, and thanks for having me. It's a beautiful day here, a great day for agriculture, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, we have a a lot of different topics that I want to discuss with you here today. First and foremost, let's just talk current events. Obviously, we're in the middle of a growing season across uh, the U.S. right now. A lot of talk has been made about this shift from a La Nina weather pattern to kind of neutral and then to an El Nino Uh, weather pattern. Can you maybe just talk about that a little bit, what you've been seeing as you examine some of the impacts of El Nino on crop production and just what we're seeing overall with this current weather pattern? Because obviously we've seen everything from extremely hot to ring of fire type thunderstorms to just there's a lot going on right now when it comes to weather. Absolutely. And so if you if you take the nation as sort of a a mosaic, right, each area is differently impacted. And so what we're seeing is because of, you know, we we, first of all, we transitioned out of a lot in the year and here in the upper Midwest, 
there was snow on the ground in some parts uh, of, of our state here in North Dakota until May. Um, so, you know, we, we, we had a late start, especially here in the upper Midwest. And then you couple that with just a, you know, two month or two, three week shoulder season of spring. And suddenly we're in the nineties and it's been very dry. And so we're, we're on one hand, still mitigating impacts from the La Nina. Uh, and as we transition into the El Nino, we're starting to see how that's not only impacting us here in this region, but as you mentioned, uh, the heat on the coasts. Uh, that, you know, typically it's it's water patterns, right? Currents mm-hmm. that are impacted. So what you're seeing is in places like off the coast of Florida, you know, the highest temperatures ever recorded in the Atlantic, 101 degrees, uh, the, you know, the Atlantic Ocean outside of um, Port St. Lucie not too long ago. That influences air patterns. Those air patterns create extensive heat, which naturally impacts crop cycles, right? So in, in the southern United States, whether it's Texas or Florida, the, you know, that, that whole belt there, uh, that crescent from the Carolinas on through to Texas, you're seeing extreme heat. And in some areas, uh, drought, which which is, you know, further exacerbating the issue and reducing crop size. Uh, and then you're, you know, obviously, as you work your way into the upper or the lower Great Plains, you know, your Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, we're still seeing impacts from the, you know, the, the last several years of drought. And then the transition from the La Nina, where you had Tons of precipitation created uh, in, in California and the Pacific Northwest, and you're you're starting to see uh, some areas obviously had over you know major flooding problems, but then other areas are experiencing some of what will likely be uh, the the you know the the the, the largest crop production cycles uh, in, in the last decade or so. And so it's really interesting because it's this quick transition from one to the other, and as a result of you know the impact from La Nina entering El Nino. Uh, you're starting to see a blend, if you will, of the impacts in various parts of the country. Well, and to your points as well, and I know you mentioned ocean temperatures, and that's having a big impact on things. And and really, here over the last couple of years, we we started to see some of these different shifts with you know not only obviously improving genetics, helping things, and more drought tolerant genetics, but also just the thoughts of seeing different areas starting to grow different types of crops or more of a certain crop. I, I think an example, the Northern Plains, you know, more corded soybeans just because of how crop cycles and temperatures and et cetera, et cetera, are changing. Absolutely. So crop cycles, temperature, like you mentioned, uh, if you were to look at, you know, the last 30 years of of uh, corn production or soy production, you're definitely seeing uh, northerly movements. But on, on top of that, the advancement of technology, uh, especially within the realm of automation, and especially up here where you've got drone technology that's that's augmenting uh, growers across the state of North Dakota. They have the first beyond visual line of sight system, as they refer to it as, uh, where you're able to basically do predictive analytics and massive data collection. You couple that with the sort of the, the transition of, you know, the northerly movement of crops. And what you're finding is uh, the ability to grow not only crops as far north, but then you're also seeing uh, just greater yields because of all of this technological improvement. At the same time, though, there's a, a greater risk for pestilence that didn't necessarily make it this far north, right? Mm-hmm. And you're you're also seeing that in the southern United States where diseases that typically impacted the subtropics are now starting to work their way into uh, various parts of the southern United States. And so uh, there are definitely benefits uh, for, for growing a variety of crops. And then with the technological innovation, uh, that that naturally accelerates that growth and those yields. But at the same time, uh, there are certainly some risks associated with um, how the climate's changing and what that's doing to agriculture. But net-net, if you're in the upper Great Plains, it's great. 
but if you're in the southern United States or lower Great Plains, you're starting to see droughts impacting a variety of um, crop cycles. And then, you know, there's only so far you can go with the Colorado River. That's why you just saw the update in the uh, the water compact among eight states. Uh, and so it, it has different impacts in different regions of the country. Uh, in the, you know, the net net, it, depending on your, uh, your region, you, you either plus or minus. But then as a country, I think we're going to end up doing uh, a little bit better in terms of our production capabilities because of the variety of new crops, not just here in my region, but in in southern regions as well, so it's uh, mm-hmm. it's not a bad deal. It's unfortunate that that this is happening, but it's uh, it's kind of one of those things where you just have to leverage it. And then, you know, simultaneous to that, you're seeing regenerative agriculture take place, where people are starting to figure out, even this far north, how do we use land all year round? You know, yeah. what cover crops could we do? Things like that. And so, all of this tech coupled with the change, I think, is um, is definitely something we should watch over the next few years, uh, especially as we try to feed the world. We're talking today with Dr. James Lamont from the University of Minnesota Crookston. And uh, Dr. Lamont, one other thing I wanted to ask you about as well before we run out of time. I know uh, you've been working on some recent research uh, looking at the potential for halal meat production in the upper Midwest. Can you just give us a little background on, on what that is and what you've been working on? Yeah, so over the last several decades, uh, there's been a, a large influx of refugees from parts of the world, uh, primarily the Islamic world where halal meat requirements are part of their dietary standards. And, you know, when you when you look at a market like that, you know, whether it's outside of Detroit, Michigan, outside of Minneapolis, Chicago, suddenly you find you have, you know, several mother, Muslim mouths to feed that have these dietary requirements. But then you look at what they're buying and they're buying it from places like New Zealand, Australia, to some degree, Brazil. And, and one's got to ask, why are you importing all of this meat? When you have this new market that has exponential growth opportunity, and not only does it have exponential growth opportunity for, say, Muslim consumers, but then, you know, large Hispanic uh, consumers as well, not because of the religious requirements, but because they have a very similar sort of uh, uh, dietary requirement as or, or dietary standard as far as like goat and, and other products that we typically don't, we haven't really seen here over the last several decades. But I, I say this because you've got all of this unique production capability here in the in the region or in other parts of the country. And instead of importing it, what we've been doing is working with local farmers as well as, uh, you know, urban distributors of, of halal meat. And what we've determined is we can save 30, 40, 50 percent on transportation costs, grow new value added production capability in our region, because, again, that's where the money's made. And so now farmers have a sustainable uh, sort of um, uh, uh, supply chain they can feed into. Again, we learned a lot from COVID. Um, And so, you know, it provides them with an alternate source. They get a premium once it gets to the processing facility because it does meet certain requirements. And then what you have is this unique sort of uh, halal production as well as distribution and subsequently retail network that's, that's being established where... You know, rural farmers are making more money, rural processors are making more money, transportation companies are making more money, and then consumers in the cities, you know, whether it's Chicago, the, the you know, Detroit Metro or Minneapolis Metro, are actually, you know, they're saving money on their products, retailers are able to get better margins, and so it's kind of a win-win across the supply chain. If you look within that vertical, nobody really loses, whether it's consumer all the way down to producer, and it's a unique marriage, if you will, of urban and rural and something that we haven't really seen. And so we're starting to see that in Minnesota with entrepreneurs, starting to see that in other parts of the country and, uh, you know, nothing against Australian and New Zealand meat. It tastes delicious. I don't know. I love their lamb, but at the end of the day, 
you're transporting it. It costs a lot of money. It has impacts on the environment. So why mm-hmm. not make it here, sell it here, and eat it here? A lot of great insight. Really enjoyed our conversation here today. We'll have to get you back on the program again soon with that. Dr. James Lamont with the University of Minnesota Crookston. Thanks so much for joining us here today, and we'll look forward to catching it up again in the future. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. And once again, really enjoyed a, a wide-ranging discussion there with Dr. James Lamont from the University of Minnesota Crookston, and uh, we'll look forward to getting him back on the program again in the future to discuss what he is uh, working on research-wise and more. Uh, really interesting conversation we had there here on AOA today. All right, well, coming up, the DTN Digital Yield Tour powered by Grow Intelligence is in the books and we are going to get a recap of what the digital yield tour found when it comes to the outlook for our corn soybean crops here wheat and more for this growing season katie dellinger farm business editor with dtn progressive farmer she is going to join us next as we recap that digital yield tour from dtn and grow intelligence that's coming up next we'll be back with more aoa on the way right after this Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Welcome back to AOA. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the show, it is crop tour season here during the month of August. And one of the interesting and exciting tours that we have is the DTN Digital Yield Tour powered by Grow Intelligence. And this has been going on all of this past week. And we want to learn more about the results and and how the the data is gathered and much more. Joining us now, DTN Farm Business Editor Katie Dellinger is with us here today. Katie, thanks for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having us, me, Jesse. I'm having a great day. Well, first off, let's just start. Can you tell me a little bit, Katie, about how the data is gathered? I know this partnership with DTN and Grow Intelligence, it's kind of it's a lot of satellite data and imagery that is used. So for folks who aren't aware of how the yield tour works, can you give us a little background on how the data is collected? So over the past six years, DTN has been working with Grow Intelligence to try and take this very different look 
at the corn and soybean crops at the time of the year when everyone's sort of looking out for the big crop tours that happen when USDA is about to make some of its first um, really science-based database yield projections on different things. We decided to take a different approach and add this out there. We partnered up with a company called Grow Intelligence. Grow is headquartered, um, or at least they have offices in New York City. And what they do is they are a science and data firm. They take um, so you're, you're correct in saying, Jesse, that the satellite data is a big input into their product. They take the, the, the normalized differential vegetative index and use that to inform uh, a part of their yield model. But they also take everything from precipitation, evapotranspiration, land surface temperatures, um, and, and an incredible array of data at the county level across the United States. So more than a thousand corn and soybean counties are in their yield model where they're building county yield estimates that update every day as new information becomes available. So we, what we do is every August, we partner with them and we take a look at the national yields. And then we really do a deep dive into 10 of the largest corn and soybean growing states where we get a state yield estimate from Grow. And we also get to look around their county yield maps. We try and highlight some of the highs, some of the lows, um, pick out some of the trends, and then really discuss those with our farmer sources that we all rely on here in the agricultural media industry. We know that farmers are, you know, the, mm-hmm. the backbone of that. And we always try and have a conversation with growers about what they're seeing to put some of that satellite and imagery into context. Well, Katie, as we look at the numbers, uh, the national numbers, uh, looks like they came in pretty much in line with where USDA is at with their numbers. Can you talk about what we found for a national average corn and soybean yield? Absolutely, Jesse. The Grow Intelligence, as of Monday of this week, had their their national average corn yield estimate at 177. Now, I know that's uh, below the 181.5 USDA had put out earlier this season, which was sort of their trend line yield. I want to also point out, though, that 177, if that is indeed what um, farmers in the U.S. grow this year as a national average, that would be a new record, eclipsing 176.7. Um, said just last year. So it's it's going to be an in, a really interesting story here, Jesse, to see just how much that early season drought really took away from this crop's potential. Because had that not happened, had we moved straight into these El Nino conditions that in July have been so beneficial for the crop, would we maybe have had an outstanding above trend record? Perhaps but that's not what happened. Um, We had a very different set of circumstances, something that's really kind of anomalous in the past 20 years of history, which is sort of the data set that grows models are built on. So we're looking at it and these yield models are doing the best they can, but it looks like using satellite data and a bunch of different um, data points, it looks like the crop has recovered pretty remarkably from that early season drought. How about the soybean side? You know, I know we've caught some timely rains here just the last week or so in soybeans that could help out. What's the what's the takeaway from grows numbers for soybeans nationwide? You know, I think while, you know, on the corn side, everyone's sort of really excited or or has a lot to talk about with the revival side of things. I think soybeans are really just kind of falling in kind of on average. There are some states where the estimates are above average, some states where the estimates are below average. There are some states where the differences within the state are gigantic um, just because of 
a lot of different factors that went into the soybean crop. Um, you know, if you think if you think back to springtime, a lot of soybeans went in when it was still kind of cool out and they got to off to a very slow start. Um, I've heard from some farmers that that's you know, they maybe outgrew some of the insecticide protection from those seed treatments um, and are now in, in at least in Ohio and in the east where it's been a little bit more wet are having some disease pressure. Um, in areas where it was cold and dry, they maybe emerged but sat there. The it, 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 There are some emergence issues. There are different um, sort of concerns about how fast that plant grew. Um, I've heard from a couple people concerns about whether the smoke sort of blocking some of the sunlight, the smoke from the Canadian wildfires were a factor factor um, for the soybean crop. Yes, some of these August rains are coming in and they have been helpful. Um, the folks at Grow say it takes a little bit longer for the rains and soybeans to really reflect through their data. So the, there's definitely some potential for a 51 bushel per acre national average yield to go up from here with some of these rains. Um, maybe not dramatically, but it's definitely in the cards and it all depends on where it fell and whether that crop is still really being able to use it because time is getting a little bit shorter up in the northern parts of the Corn Belt, um, but there's still plenty of time for it to be used across across the heart of the country. Well, Katie, uh, talk to me as well as we break down things state by state. And I know as we look at the eastern Corn Belt, there's been a lot of focus on Illinois. They've had drought issues, but it sounds like according to the uh, Digital Yield Tour, Illinois seen a bit of resurgence while Indiana and Ohio, uh, we've been hearing good things about the crops there. And it seems like that is getting more and more confirmed. Uh, can you talk about the results from kind of the eastern Corn Belt for us? Absolutely, Jesse. I think looking at Ohio, what's interesting, um, very few states, uh, really only there were two states in our, our digital yield tour that showed potential to put out a record crop of any kind. And one of those was the Ohio soybean crop. Grows yield estimate for that state is 58.7 bushels per acre wow. on soybeans. That's up from about 55 and a half last year. So there's a pretty good bean crop started out in Ohio. Um, it is a little bit wetter. They will have a little bit more of some of the disease problems and some of the issues related to that out there. So there's a big bean crop out in Ohio. Ohio's looking at an above average corn crop to 190.7. Um, then over in Indiana, you know, they think they got to a little bit of a slower start um, in the spring and maybe that reduced the amount of the time um, some of those crops spent in those drought conditions where I visited a farmer um, late last month, northeast of Indianapolis, they had gotten, um, you know, just the right amount of rain. They never really lost moisture throughout the soil profile. So they were in a much better moisture condition in Indiana than its neighbor in Illinois. So Indiana's average corn yield came in at 193.7. It's bean yield at 58.9. So we're seeing some good crops in the eastern corn belt. Illinois, we've talked a lot about because of that drought, that amazing recovery with the above normal rains. Illinois has got an average yield estimate of 197.3 and a bean estimate of 60.2, which is the highest we've seen uh, or we see on the D DTN digital yield tour. We're talking with Katie Dellinger from DTN about the digital yield tour powered by Grow Intelligence. Katie, as we shift west of the Mississippi River, very curious about what you've seen and found in Iowa. And also, I know you have the Nebraska-Wisconsin results that came out and then Kansas-Missouri as well. But starting just with Iowa, what did you guys find there? You know, Iowa had some of everything when you really looked at the state map. It, 
But what it had in our, in our digital yield tour was the highest average state corn yield at 202 bushels per acre. Usually it's sort of a, a neck and neck battle between Iowa and Illinois who takes that crown. This year it's Iowa. You look at the map and there are some areas that have had persistent lingering drought, some where they just haven't gotten as much of the rains as they came through, but a lot of the state really benefited. They got some of that rain a little earlier towards the end of the June. They got a little bit more. They got a little more often. So corn is off to a pretty good start in Iowa. It did suffer those drought conditions. It did go down um, in its condition, in its potential, but then really got brought back by the rain. So it joins that revival and resurgence story as mm -hmm. much, but it really, um, it, it took off and it's got our best corn yield potential um, in the country, according to the DTN tour. On beans, they've got some really strong potential there too, 58.4. Um, but unlike um, Iowa, which is just a couple bushels away from record, that's just an average bean yield for Iowa. So it kind of keeps with that story of, you know, the, the corn crops really having a lot of um, surprise given their comeback. Um, and beans are really just kind of um, what you would expect with a whole lot of variability built in there. Averages cover a lot of range of different types of conditions and yields. Sure, sure. Katie, we got about uh, a minute left here. Uh, final takeaways from any of the other states or just any other final takeaways from this year's Digital Yield Tour? There are definitely some have-nots of rain, and I'll just get through some of the numbers on that quickly. Missouri really struggled with drought through a lot of its primary corn and soybean yep. areas. Our yield there for corn was 150.1. On soybeans, it was 48.4. Southern Minnesota's actually had a lot of drought there too, but that drought is actually a late-season drought that started here over the past, or really accelerated over the past six weeks. They've missed out on those rains. So Minnesota's corn yields are estimated about 180. 80 compared to 195 last year with beans down around 47.2 well below 50 last year and their expect expected average so some of the crops are really struggling in missouri minnesota and southern wisconsin well we appreciate the time i know folks could find all the results dtnpf.com katie dellinger farm business editor with dtn thanks for joining us and giving us the results of this year's digital yield tour we appreciate it thank you and coming up next, we'll take a look at news headlines, including some updates on the Farm Bill. We'll be back with more AOA right after this. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Nick Corville, an animal nutrition consultant with CHS, about calf nutrition and weaning strategies. Now is an ideal time for cattle producers to consider adding calf creep to their management plans. Nick, if an operation is looking to add creep feeding, what benefits might they expect? The upfront one would be pasture savings. Replacing dry matter from those calves that are now eating a pellet is going to save grass for the mama cow. Using calf creep, you're also going to see heavier weaning weights at the end of the season. Majority of the time, we can see healthier calves just because we're forcing a trace mineral vitamin package into them through that pellet that they're not normally getting from a fiber diet. What's the potential return on investment with creep feeding? Typically, depending on pasture conditions and the way the operation runs, you can see a 50 to 70 pound gain just with using calf creep alone. If pasture conditions are ideal, 
maybe sometimes even knock on the door 70 to 100 pounds additional gain from calf creep 410 dollars ton calf creep our feed to gain ratio the calf's going to have to eat around five pounds to gain one pound of muscle that equates to a cost of about one dollar per pound of gain and calves around it where i'm at anywhere anywhere from two to 275 so it's going to cost you a dollar to feed them but you're going to return a dollar to a dollar fifty back this year if it works for you and you can get a hold of some creep feeders and what calf weaning strategies do you recommend for cattle producers this year? If a producer's already got the capital expense tied up in a creep feeder operation and has feeders rented, there's some self-fed products that we use, Head Start specifically. You just roll from calf creep right into Head Start with the same feeder. That calf's already accustomed to eating out of that feeder, knows what it is. Um, the only difference is now mom's gone. So as much of that constant we can keep with that calf, he's going to go right to eating. The quicker we can get them on feed, usually the faster they're going to wean off and get the ball out of them. So mom doesn't have to be there. Well, thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. On the latest episode of The Monthly Grind, we talked about the relationship between corn and poultry with Troy Schneider and Michael Granche from NCGA. Troy explains it a little bit more. Poultry is one of our biggest consumers, if not the biggest consumer in the livestock industry, consuming mm-hmm. 1.2 billion bushels of corn. When you take poultry exports and figure that in, the export of poultry brings 28 cents per bushel to the value of corn, and that's $4.1 billion in revenue to the corn industry. And Michael shares some of the continuing goals and outreach efforts that NCGA wants to do with its animal ag partners. Continuing all of the partnership and, and all of the conversations and discussions that we have with our animal ag partners is immediately where my mind goes to of, you know, what I'm thinking about for what continues to excite me and then and what's around the bend. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the latest episode of the Monthly Grind on AOA with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. Now welcome back to AOA. And of course, here on the program, we've been trying to keep tabs on what's going on with the farm bill. Of course, uh, talking to Congressman Glenn G.T. Thompson, the House Ag Chair, getting his thoughts on the farm bill here Uh, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa sharing his thoughts on the farm bill. Well, going back almost 100 years, the farm bill has become an integral part in keeping America's food system strong and reliable. Today, agriculture's role in providing food security and in turn national security to the United States is more important than ever. And now work on the next farm bill has been going on during a period of volatility on every front, political, economic and beyond. A new poll from the American Farm Bureau Federation shows that consumers are supportive of the farm legislation, according to Carrie Barbick, Director of Communications for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Top priorities for folks were really those risk management tools especially like when we're looking at emphasizing the importance of keeping our food supply secure that resonated with folks as well as the importance of nutrition programs like we talked a lot about the importance of a unified farm bill and how farmers are part of that story in growing the food that goes into those nutrition programs that's supporting so many families who are facing hunger and more so in like challenging times with this economy. So we found that those were top items that resonated with folks, but really 
conservation programs, crop insurance, ag research, like all of those like resonated with folks as important priorities. Well, Ryan Yates is Managing Director of Government Affairs with American Farm Bureau, and he says it would be ideal for the bill to get passed in a timely manner, but that it is easier said than done. If this bill slips past the deadline, I'm not ultimately worried about it. I think Congress, they know what they need to do. They know how to get it done. And the other thing Congress is good at is writing short-term extensions. And so it has to get done this year, though. We continue to maintain strong pressure on Congress to get this thing done. There's so much at stake. And frankly, Congress was elected to do a job. And we're going to remind them that they need to do that job for the American people. Now, the deadline for getting a new farm bill together is September 30th. However, many folks throughout uh, the Senate and the House have said they don't anticipate the farm bill will get done by September 30th. They're looking more at the end of the calendar year. Now, of course, as ongoing drought grips much of the West and Midwest, farmers and ranchers are utilizing farm bill programs to ensure they're acting as stewards of the land. Megan Richner, a farmer in Missouri, which has been one of the driest spots of the country, says the Farm Bill's conservation programs have positively impacted her operation and kept them in business. Really, those conservation programs in the Farm Bill saved our farm during this drought that we're experiencing. And if it wasn't for those, we'd be in a pretty bad shape on our farm. We have not had to sell any cows. We've had some land, we've had grass, and really our land and grass would be in much worse condition if we would not have started using these conservation programs back in 2014. Richner says Congress can't wait until next year to pass a farm bill. Due to the uncertainty in agriculture, whether it's an uncertainty in markets, whether it's the uncertainty in weather across the United States, certainly for us, the Farm Bill has been a safety net. It allows farmers like us to weather the storm and help us continue to grow food for our communities, whether it's crops or, in our case, producing beef. Still able to do that because of the Farm Bill and the programs that it provides. And she encourages farmers and ranchers to reach out to their elected officials and share their agriculture story. One of the best things a farmer and rancher can do to really get the farm bill across the finish line this year is just pick up the phone and have a conversation with your legislators or their staff. How has the farm bill impacted your farm? They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Show them those pictures. Tell them your story. Well, for more information on how to interact with your elected officials, you can go online to fb.org forward slash farm bill. Again, that's fb.org forward slash farm bill. Well, the United Soybean Board's Animal Nutrition Working Group regularly engages with animal nutritionists to guide research investments for U.S. soybean meal. While the result of this collaboration brings additional value opportunities for the soybean industry and positively impacts the poultry, pig, dairy, and aquaculture sectors. Keenan McRoberts, Vice President of Strategic Alignment with the United Soybean Board, shares details about the collaboration. Our collaboration with animal nutritionists throughout the private sector has been a real success story. We've been working together for well over a decade now with a lot of your major poultry, swine feed formulators, and actively formulating nutritionists at Tyson, Mashoffs, Purdue Farms, CalMaine, which is one of the largest egg producers, and more. So these nutritionists have really been dedicated to working with the United Soybean Board to advise us on research investments that really advance solutions related to the use of soybean meal and feed formulation. Well, the collaboration has also identified a set of priorities spanning overall nutrient composition, improved measurement of anti-nutritional factors, and the resulting benefits to animal production, performance, and health. 
So things like better understanding the traditional value drivers for soybean meals, so the protein and the amino acids that make it up, as well as energy that go into those rations, and help them create a differentiated proposition versus alternative feed ingredients along with understanding more about the health benefits of soybean meal in those rations and some things related to bioactive functional compounds that help animals produce more and stay healthier than they might otherwise when you got a little bit more meal involved. And he talks about trends in animal agriculture and aspects that animal nutritionists are looking for in diets. Nutritionists continue to prioritize high-quality, nutrient-dense feed. So things like amino acids and energy, which are the traditional value drivers that make soybean meal such a valuable ingredient, especially in poultry and swine rations. But beyond that, we're seeing an additional push toward factors that go beyond the traditional. Things like sustainability, so nutrient use efficiencies, sustainability, and solving some of the corporate commitments related to sustainability outcomes and feed formulations. We're also also continuing to work to make a higher value product with folks that are working on the biotechnology side of genetic improvement to ensure that the markets are continuing to increase the quality of soybean meal as well. And once again, that is Keenan McRoberts, Vice President of Strategic Alignment with the United Soybean Board. You can keep up to date with the latest news from the United Soybean Board online, unitedsoybean.org. Again, that's unitedsoybean.org. And one final story we're watching here on today's program, uh, the drought hit Panama Canal, temporarily limiting the number of new reserved passage slots to help ease a bottleneck of ships that are waiting to transit without reservations. And according to the Waterways Authority, this past Thursday, a log jam of commercial vessels seeking to pass through the canal, one of the world's busiest trade passages, has sent companies that typically use the waterway chasing alternative routes, according to executives and data. Any delay or disruption can put shippers on edge. The Panama Canal, of course, reduces costs and transit times for many shippers, including major retailers and energy companies involved in trade between China and the U.S. And that report, according to Reuters, it is something we are going to watch closely. All right, we're out of time here on AOA. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. As a farmer, I want a cooperative that's there for me. Not the other way around. A local co-op that works for me and works with CHS. To connect me with local experts I know and trust. And put a global network of markets and supply at my fingertips. A co-op that's here to help us. Own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com.